Hello and welcome back to the Seriously Good podcast. The Serie A season may be over, but we'll be going long into the summer with more episodes, more content. As always, I'm your host, Casey Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, Danny Corcoran. How are you today, Danny? I'm very good, thanks. Casey, yourself? I'm good, I'm good. It's a sun is shining, and we're still talking about Serie A in the summer, which is good because talk about United and other stuff is not great at the moment. So we'll just talk about the Italian Football League. But today... We are absolutely delighted to have a guest on once again. He's a Serie A writer. He's an author. He has written The Working Hands of a Goddess. And he has another book coming out next year, which I'm sure he'll want to talk about. We have Tom Underhill. How are you doing today, Tom? Um, very well, thank you, Casey. That, that intro sounded very sort of Shrek-like when they're sort of going through the uh, marriage contestants. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. But yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. And thank you very much for having me on today. Look forward to talking I don't about... know why, but in my head, I just thought you were going to say that sounded very professional. And then you just went, something very Shrek-like. And it really, was... really undercut me. It really undercut my momentum. That was it the best description of everything, anything I've ever heard. It actually did sound like that scene of Shrek. Unless I'm going to hear it whenever you introduce people though. Whenever I introduce you, I'm just I'm just in the mirror from Shrek. Oh, yeah. Shrek, thanks for that. Well, it, th- it but, threw me as well. So uh, yeah, we're all absolutely thrown by it. But yeah, I'm good, mate. Thank you. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking about all things Syria, Atalanta, all that good stuff. So uh, so yeah. 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 So Tom's book is about Atalanta, and that is going to be the topic of today's episode. Well, the main topic. But because it's the end of the Syria season, we've got Syria writer on. And we just we need to do a little bit of a roundup. We're just going to talk about the season just quickly before we get into everything. So, Tom, just going to go straight out of the bat with a bit of a broad question. What did you think of this season? Did you think it was a good season? Did you think it was a mad season? Did you think it was one of the ones where it's like there are good and bad things, which is just every serious season? I it was a mental season. Like it was absolutely bizarre. I think the way I can. I've tried to sort of formulate in my head is that other than Napoli I don't think anyone can really say they had a good season it was you had teams who had really good spells as in like really impressive spells now like thinking of um so Atalanta starts the season that was their their best ever and they were second sort of going into November um Lazio went on a really long run where their defense was was really strong and Providell had really sort of staked his claim to be their number one despite you know despite Immobile being out for a period um, and Inter finished the season amazingly but no team could really string it together for for more than a couple of months at a time and at, at one point in the season the, any team would have been absolutely crap and it's it, it left this really sort of you didn't really know what you were going to get from any match apart from mostly with Napoli um, I mean it made it very enjoyable entertaining and I think it probably gave Syria a bit more of a platform to sort of extend its reach you know fourth winner in four years and sort of an unpredictability about it um but yeah just very strange season with I don't think any team can really look back and be super happy with it apart from apart from Napoli and maybe maybe Fiorentina but yeah them aside strange strange old year yeah, I'd throw Monza into that, but that was mainly because they just kind of got thrown shockingly up to the top. And Danny's like, he's mentioned Monza again. He's always wants he always wants to talk about Monza. But yeah, I kind of agree with you there. It's it, it's not so much that every team had like their little stumble. They had like a car crash and had to get dragged to the garage and get the car fixed before they could start up again. It was like really good stretches and then really long bad stretches as well, which we've talked about on the podcast before. I think Danny also probably agrees with that as well. Yeah, I think Lazio will probably consider themselves to have a good season, but it did. I mean, like they definitely should have qualified for the Champions League at some point, and then it kind of went off the rails, and it looked like maybe they wouldn't, and then they did. But now there's a bit of uncertainty around a few of their star players and stuff, and them leaving. So I think I'd probably include them out in the bracket, but I can I can see what Tom means by like they definitely had a stretch where it went off the rails a bit. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. Like a lot, the good thing for Lazio, I think, is their problematic um, period lined up either during or just after the people around them had their own problematic periods, which kind of gave them a little bit of a buffer to actually um, stay in the 
in in the top four. Obviously, another thing that happened, which kind of adds to the mental thing, was the Juventus charges. Um, obviously, they lost points, they got points back, then they lost points again, and that has seen them uh, drop into the UEFA, UEFA Conference League spot, which they could eventually lose because obviously the investigation isn't gone. Um, what do you think about that situation, obviously, Tom? I mean, there's a situation out in terms of what it means for Juventus and the club and financially, but it also means for the state of Serie A because Juventus are seen as one of the flagship clubs in the league and always in the top European competitions, but I always think that they're not a very good advertisement for the league because they play such awful football. <laughs> I think you've I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think there's two different perspectives you can look at it from. So you can look at it in terms of what does it mean for Syria looking outwards and to have the the biggest club in Syria uh, sort of dragged through the dragged through the mud so publicly. It looks it looks really bad and and it kind of from from the outside it looked like Syria had started to move away from that image, the sort of Calciopoli image and you know, sort of trying to, yeah, not not project these, not for these underlying issues to not be at the surface like they had been for the past 20, 30 years. And then this comes along. And, and the, the other factor is that Juventus is the, by far and away the most heavily supported club in Italy. So when something like this happens, it does, it raises questions about, uh, you know, this huge fan base's trust in the league and the judicial process that goes on behind it. Um, then there's the other side of it, the other perspective, which is it's Juventus and it is really funny. Like it is funny to see this happen, and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a joke. Like the sort of the public back and forth thing about points taken away, points awarded, waiting till you know that it was going to be the day of the the match against Sporting in the Europa League that they were going to find out, and it just it's just a bit of a mockery really of the of the whole process. But you can't. You struggle to feel too sorry for them because it's it's Juventus and it is quite funny. Um, you you do have to wonder about you know there there are several investigations stuff going on for different reasons and you know say if Napoli's purchase of Osman gets investigated too closely like I know it's been looked at but when that comes around what's the penalty going to be like for them and how does that cast a cloud over what they've done in the past few years so. There's, there's all sorts of questions and it's very complicated, but if you're not a Juve fan, I think you've just sort of got to enjoy is a strong word, but, you know, laugh a little bit at it, I think. If you go out with one, you cannot. <laughs> I was about to say, now to get the other side of the debate from a completely unbiased source who doesn't have a girlfriend who's a Juventus fan. Danny, what would you answer to that conversation? <laughs> Absolutely no comment. I think the thing is, like, it's been happening in Serie A. The things that Juventus are accused of in charge has been happening throughout the league, and a few teams have done what they. But Juventus did it in broad daylight. Like they just, they didn't care. They thought they'd probably get away with it, and they didn't. And that's what's happened. In the grand scheme of things, they've got off pretty lightly because, like, if they'd have finished second, third, fourth, UEFA and Chevron are going to throw the ban at them anyway. So now Juventus are going to be banned from Euro European competitions, but they're going to miss out on the Conference League, a competition they don't want to play in anyway. So they've it's actually worked out kind of okay with them. The only issue is the squad's a mess. People aren't renewing their season tickets because they hate the manager. They can't afford to sack the manager. Like this, the club's a mess, even though they kind of got off lightly with this whole thing. Yeah, it's definitely caught in limbo, I think, is because like, they have Allegri, who's kind of the standard of what Juventus became over the last decade, but then they have all these young players and they want to move on from that and they want to become a different team and build some other stuff. And I think it's just kind of very stuck in time. It's kind of like caught between the two periods of where Juventus want to be. Um, but moving away from the sort of the bad publicity that Serie A has had, um, we'll move on to the good publicity. I think... Oh, we've spoken just briefly about this, but Napoli, I think obviously it's been really good what Napoli have done. Like They've drawn a lot of eyes to the league. I think this has even topped the sort of hipster's choice of Maurizio Sarri's Napoli team, where everyone was kind of watching that and enjoying that. This has kind of now even topped that. Um, do you think th that's kind of a, uh, a glowing endorsement of the Serie A, that there's the, a the team that exciting that's been able to grab those eyes and bring 
people in to actually look at the league in, the, in a whole as well. I don't think that like AC Milan and Inter did with their two title winning sides. I think so. And because I think there is still a, uh, for those for people who don't watch Serie A, I think there is still a widely held belief that it's, that it's boring, pragmatic football. Like, I, think, I, I, I think that is genuinely the, the belief held by most, particularly Premier League watchers. Um, whereas in actual fact, Serie A is, is as attacking and open as it's, oh, I mean, as, as long as I can remember, like, is the, the, the number of sides in Serie A who play a kind of an open brand of football as opposed to those who are more dogmatic and um, more traditionally, let's say, Italian, what, they, what people define as traditionally Italian, I think it outweighs it now and that, that they won it playing that, that style. And also had a deep run in Europe that was um, sort of available to a lot of non-Syria viewers' eyes. Um, I think was amazing. I mean, for me, for me personally, I think I, just, I like the story of Spalletti as well. I think I think being a manager as long as he had and coming so close all those times, like reaching uh, Roma's highest ever points tally and coming second, and then sort of many near misses and he'd never quite got the respect he deserved because he'd always been either sort of castigated by fans or chased out of the club he was at um, or in the case of Roma just losing a power battle with Totti like it was he'd been really unfortunate and um, slipped under the radar of sort of, re- of the more appreciated Italian Italian managers so for him to do it at his age like this in a team in his image and then just to walk away afterwards, I think that is just the, it's the best story ever. I think it's amazing. And if you were going to script a way for Luciano Spalletti to do it, I think he's always he's written the film himself. Like it's, it's you would have predicted it. It's perfect of what you know about him. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a great story. And uh, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how they, how they go from here. Particularly now they've brought Rudy Garcia in. I think that'll be that'll be really interesting. Yeah, I think we've spoken. We spoke about um, Rudy Garcia uh, a couple of weeks. I think it might have been last week actually when we got the news of him being appointed. Um, I'll let Danny take the floor on what his thoughts on Rudy Garcia are because I think we both kind of had an agreement on the sort of direction that that might end up with Napoli going. I mean, it's not the worst appointment in the world, but it's boring and it doesn't really. What I'll say is it's. Probably interesting for the league because if Spalletti had stayed, you'd probably say Napoli were showing to repeat, maybe Inter would challenge him, I think, in my head at the moment. But there's a lot of question marks about Inter's squad and Jekyll's leaving, and they've got a lot of older players. Brozovic might go to the Saudi league. But now it kind of opens it up, and I don't know, we could see another winner yet again with Lazio if maybe Atalanta clicks again next season. It could be them, like it is very open. All the every single team that finished in the top six, seven last season has a big question mark about them somewhere. It makes it very interesting, if nothing else. And on to one like final bit of publicity. I mean, we we've seen the sort of Premier League domination of European competition in the last couple of years. But what we had this season was that the Serie A team ended up in every single final. Um, they ended up in the obviously Champions League, Europa, and then UEFA for Conference League. Obviously, then lost every single final, which is very reminiscent of Bart playing chess but <laughs> in The Simpsons and that gift that gets used a lot but I do think it's a great advertisement and I do think that that's sort of been a great thing that we've seen this season and I was just going to put that to you Tom like do you think that that was kind of, it kind of we would start to Stephen about it when they were going these teams were going deep and he said it was kind of like papering over the cracks because it kind of shows that these Italian teams are showing quality and like that's not really that present in the league comparative to the other teams and in that competition. But the fact that they got to the final and actually showed competition and competed in both, like Inter managed to even kind of make City look shaky, which was something that no one expected. Do you think it is still a good endorsement at the end of the uh, at the end of the road? I think I think it is in the sense that um, people are starting to might start to reconsider their their view of Syria. I think people who watch it more regularly will will like you say we'll see it as a it's, it's it's pretty anomalous i don't think it's um i don't think it's particularly the product of like a increase in quality of the league for example um i mean and also i think in, in the case of inter and fiorentina especially it was it was two teams who just caught 
caught fire at the right time. Like, if you, like, if you saw Fiorentina at the start of the season, or even up to about Christmas, they were... I, I kind of liken them to Potter's Brighton, in the sense, you looked at them on paper, and you're like, this team's incredible. Like, he's he's doing such a good job here, but yeah, they just couldn't score. And it just... That, that luck just turned for them in the second half of the season. That carried them through to the to the Conference League final. Um, but there, there was that that brilliant Fabio Capello uh, video made by Syria, the, the couch is back video. And I think a lot of people outside of Syria would have seen that and thought it was, um, might have taken it more seriously than, yeah, than people who watch it regularly because they see it's not really, it's not really the case. Like it's a nice, it's a nice sentiment. Um, but yeah, that, yeah, it was, it was, it was great to see it. And particularly if one of them come away with a trophy, um, but I think I think it was just I think it was quite anomalous. I think it could easily have you could easily have not seen any. You know, you could have just seen an Italian side in one final, and I wouldn't have thought that was unfair. Um, so yeah, that sounds a bit bit doom and gloom, like pouring water on it. But I, th- I think that's just the reality of it. I think with, just with cup competitions, I think it's just a it's just about luck and that luck turning your way at the right time. So rather than it being part of a wider uh, kind of upward trajectory. Yeah. I think that's we, we we've talked about uh, Fiorentina a lot in terms of the um, Brightonism that we were saying, like the fact that they <coughs> created so many chances but just couldn't seem to score them at all. And Danny even put on his most disappointing teams when we started this podcast, and ever since then, it, it was literally around Christmas, so it was about the time we were saying when they were playing really badly, and then ever since then they went on the winning streak and got back up to the top half of the table. So Danny was regretting that one deeply. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think on Fiorentina, like. A team like that should definitely be getting to the latter stages of the Conference League every year anyway. Like, their budget far goes by. I mean, West Ham eclipses Fiorentinos, but Fiorentinos eclipses some of the other teams they were playing in that competition. Like, they play teams like Sivaspor in the in the knockouts. Like, they should be beating those teams. And they, made, they did make hard work of it at times. Like, they had a few panics. And then, yeah, I think when well, you're pushed at it, Roma should probably be getting to the latter stages of the Europa League if they're in it with the outlay they've had since Mourinho's been there and with the Champions League I think the Italian team's got very lucky that it ended up with three out of the four of them being on one side of the draw if Real Madrid were on that side of the draw if Bayern were on the side, I know those teams have flaws but they probably would have knocked out Inter, Milan, Napoli Um, Napoli maybe not I don't know, Napoli got a bad matchup because Milan match up well with them but I think it, so much about its luck, and like Stephen said, like I don't think it was fully encapsulating where the league is at. We're going to move on to the main subject of this podcast. Obviously, Tom, you've written a book on the subject. We're talking about Atalanta. I just thought, you know what? I'll give you a little bit of a, a, a platform to talk about your book, give, us, give everyone a little bit of overview, and also kind of state your pedigree to the listeners. Um, so, just want to talk just shortly, uh, just quickly about your book, The Working Hands of a Goddess. Yeah, so in uh, my yeah, first book came out in um, August last year um, called The Working Hands of a Goddess, which charted the sort of the rise of the rise of Atalanta under, under Gian Piero Gasparini. And, um, but also looking at the, the sort of brief history before it, because I think setting the context of what Atalanta are is is important in terms of recognizing why i felt it was important to write a book about it because also there's no you know without wanting to spoil it there's no trophy at the end of it there's no title win for it to sort of crown that moment but what you do have is you have a team that is a perennial um serie b you know bouncing between serie b and serie a they had i can't i'm not sure i think it's still the case they have more serie b titles than anyone in any Italian club, which kind of shows that they were, you know, they bounced straight back out and come straight back down again. And um, I think it was during the 1980s, they didn't spend more than one consecutive season in the same division. Like they would drop them down to uh, Serie G at one point. Um, always famed for having a great academy and producing really, like great players, but Atalanta would very rarely see the, see the peak of those players. They would spend a year with them at the start of their career or just come through the academy and then they get plucked by one of the two nearby Milan clubs or Juventus or it was it was just the way it always happened and um, yeah carried on right the way into the mid-2010s until Gian Piero Gasparini arrived and 
Gasparini needed a bit of a, a revival to his career. He had a magnificent spell at Genoa, um, sort of around 2006 to about 2010. But then from there, had had two very uh, bad experiences. One was at Inter, where he was hired off the back of the Genoa job. And he was about eighth choice for that Inter job. So he, he was never particularly wanted. And he was following, um, following Rafa Benitez. And then obviously before that was Mourinho at Inter. Um, and it had gone very, very badly. He lasted five matches. And that stained his reputation. And from there, he went to Palermo. And Palermo had a very rocky ownership uh, model. He was... He was sacked, hired, and then sacked again in the same season. It's just he he needed a, a pick me up, and from there he went back to Genoa, rebuilt his career, and then on to uh, then on to Atalanta, and that just put, proved to be the perfect marriage. And he took Atalanta, who had sort of finished fifth around fifteenth the season before, took them up to fourth, and then seventh, and then into the top three for three or four consecutive seasons. And in one of those seasons, they broke the uh, 70-year Serie A record for goals scored in the season, which just doesn't happen with a team of that lower wage budget. You know, like 11th or 12th highest wage in the league just doesn't doesn't happen. And very unique style of football. And all through all through the, the COVID seasons, they, despite not having the fans in the stadium, um, and the fans are a big part of Atalanta. It's intrinsic to who they are is the, the relationship with the fans and that it's they they mirror the 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 identity of the people in Bergamo. They the team is meant to mirror that and Gasparini perfected it and even when fans weren't in the stadium during COVID, they continued on this incredible upward trajectory. And um yeah, we've ended up at a point where they're qualifying for Europe next season and no one's really sort of shouting too much about it because it's almost become a bit of the norm under Gasparini, which is just, it's a miracle really. And uh, yeah, that's what I sort of wanted to write the book about and tell that. Yeah, and, and I, I haven't picked the book up yet, but I will be picking it up. I, I did see it. It's in my uh, sort of wish list of stuff that I need to pick up in terms of getting through a very long list of footballing books. I'm currently reading, what was I reading? I think I'm reading the Inverting the Pyramid again because I was like, I haven't really read it in a while, and obviously with how tactics are going recently, it's a very interesting um, book to go back to. Um, so you kind of touched on it a bit there, but I just wanted to start by asking you like, what you thought of this season, because obviously we've already mentioned the really good start and then the sort of like stumbling block, but then obviously at the end of the season, it's kind of all started to come together. So what have you thought of Atalanta this season? Uh, a, bit, a bit like Syria as a whole, it's been really hard to kind of work out how good their season was. I mean, on, on paper, it's an undeniable success in that they finished fifth and returned to the Europa League. Like, that is... It's, it's important to state just how almost low Atalanta's expectations are. All the, the chairman, the Picassi family who own Atalanta, their expectations are not to get into Europe every year. Like, even right up until the 2020 season, when they'd already spent two years in the Champions League, president said that their aim every year was just to not be relegated and it hasn't moved too far away from that now it's still probably around just to achieve mid-table and be financially uh, profitable which they are um, so to finish fifth and get back in the Europa League is an, a success in the broad sense of where Atalanta have come from um, and also that the start of the season we, we weren't really sure what we were going to get because um, Gasparini was very vocal before the season started and how unhappy he was um, Lee Congerton had arrived as head of recruitment after pretty mixed spells at Celtic and Leicester and he was replacing Giovanni Sartori who was the brains behind their incredible recruitment drive from 2014 so he predated Gasparini at Atalanta right up until last season so the the incredible you know the signings of um, Malinowski of Remo Freuler um, Jos Bilicic like too many to name Sartori was the sort of the brains behind that and he left for Bologna supposedly some fallings out behind the scenes with Gasparini and he took Atalanta's head scout as well so it was a really rocky looking um, landscape and particularly if you if you take Gasparini out of Atalanta it's, it's hard to say where they'll where they'll go to and there are well, I'm sure we'll get onto it later there are questions about just how perfect Gasparini is for them anymore um, but you take him out of that that sort of figurehead, that icon, their, their greatest ever manager, where does that leave Atalanta? So there, there were some real questions. 
Um, the signings at the start of the season looked pretty underwhelming. Like, obviously, Lookman and Hoyland have turned out to be like revelatory signings, but at the time, there wasn't really much um, expectation or hype around them. Edison from Salernitana was just seen as like backup, and same with Brandon Soppy. Um, and so from coming from there to finish fifth, I think it was was brilliant. And there was it was definitely a reverting to Gasparini's early years in the sense that he he his ideals were to implement a sort of high possession based style of football, but just don't have the players for it anymore. Particularly losing Froiler, they don't have a a dictator, a tempo setter in, in midfield. So he reverted to a kind of classic young counter-attacking team, um, which was kind of interesting to see. Um, you know, the average just 49% possession over the season, which is really unlike them for for recent years. Um, but like, it's, there were certain signs of adjustment and Gasparri doesn't tend to adjust very well. He's, a, he's an absolute, he's firm in his beliefs of how he wants to play football and he doesn't really tend to deviate from that too much so that was quite interesting to see and yeah like I said Lookman Hoyland you know what more can you kind of say from their seasons and yeah you can't really grumble at a fifth place finish after those sort of questions being asked. Yeah I think that it was definitely the case that the Atalanta at the end kind of brought it all together and I think that the the thing is is that the European competition obviously you weren't in it last season you were completely out of it um, in terms of the fact that like you wait for Conference League, you didn't even finish 7th, I think you finished 8th at the end of the season. Um, so is it, it, it sort of is like, it kind of steadied the ship a little bit. Obviously, as you said, that that's not the case that you want to get into European football, but in terms of the outside looking in sort of thing, it does show a sort of steadying the ship. Um, Danny, do you agree with the sort of what Tom said in terms of the Gasparini stuff? Obviously, like, we, we have seen this, this season, this is a very different sort of team. Like, obviously... The midfield has been very fluid. I think Cooper Miners has been excellent coming in from the midfield. He's got a hat-trick at the end of the season, which was absolutely insane. And I think he's a great player. But do you think it was a much more fluid system and sort of like maybe an ideal that Gasparini could change his ways and maybe adapt his system if he needs to, to stay there a bit longer? Yeah, I think, like there, were, like Tom said, there was a lot of like squad change with Atalanta in the summer. And obviously... Even within the players that stayed, like Zapata, Muriel struggled a lot this season. They kind of come came back and clutch towards the end. But like, you're bringing in Rasmus Hoyland from Sturmgratz, who he'd scored a lot of goals in the Austrian league, but he'd struggled before that in Copenhagen before, and he set the world alight. And Gasparini played to his strengths. Lukman was always seen as like a decent Premier League player. I think a, a few people were surprised that he didn't stay in, in the league. Like, he'd look good for Fulham. He'd been okay for Leicester. He just... he At times, he carried that attack. I remember there was one away game at, at the Alliance against Juventus where it was, I think it finished 3-3, but Lookman that night was unbelievable. I think... Yeah, I, I, there was a lot of adjustment from Gasparini. I think... I mean, Atlanta finished second top scorers in the league behind Napoli. Like, and with a young squad, there's like there's Hoyland in there, Scalvini, Ederson's pretty young. Like he's he's managed to kind of change things up and keep it fresh. Because I think there was a lot of question marks last summer after they finished outside the European places of whether is this the Atlanta cycle kind of ending. I think everyone sort of expects it to come crashing back down at some point like their wage budgets like bottom half area side and that's only gonna keep going i don't know what will happen with monza but a lot of teams have a bit much bigger budget than atalanta so them managing to do this yeah i mean but gasparini's not young either so we'll see how much longer he goes for yeah i think that's the sort of case of with the wage budget and stuff is is going to lead into the next question. Obviously, we've, we've, I, I wanted to ask your opinion on some of the young players. Obviously, Scalvini and Hoyland, Danny just mentioned there. They've been two massive parts of the squad. Obviously, Hoyland's been a bit more off the bench and so on, but his goals have been really important. But Scalvini has been sort of a revelation. I mean, I, firstly, I want to know what your opinion is of these t- players breaking through, but and also I'm expecting there's the sort of the worry that because it's a lower wage squad, because they are young players with potential in this market where everyone wants to grab them, 
is it a sort of case of, oh yeah, well, they're great, but we're going to probably have to replace them. <laughs> At times we're going to have to replace them. Yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll start with Hoyland. Hoyland's kind of the natural starting point, and I'd, I'd be lying if I said I kind of had uh, too much knowledge of him coming into it. Like, I knew how highly rated he was, and I saw that his, his record in Austria was very impressive. But I think... For most Atalanta fans, I think it was the the thing they were looking forward to most this season was to see, like a season of Duvan Zapata being fit again because he just had barely featured throughout the second half of the season before he'd been amazing up till about Christmas and there was a uh, a performance as as an away win against against Juventus at the Allianz it was a one 0 win and Zapata put one of the great centre forward performances and then he got injured shortly after, um, and kind of just hoping to see him back because he's like with with Papu Gomez gone and Ilicic phased out and then released Zapata was like the kind of the, the final remnant of that great um, Atalanta starting attack so to have that connection to him they really wanted to see him back starting and I don't think there would have been much expectation of Hoyland to to replace him um, and you know you, you guys know enough about it about me needing to go too deep but he's just he's fantastic to watch and he, he does remind me of Duvan in a lot of ways like the his that early shot he takes on that's almost mid stride where he, it's like a snappy shot that almost takes the goalkeeper off guard that's like an instinctive finish on the run that's very Duvan Zapata um, and he hasn't isn't quite despite his frame he's not quite the focal point that Zapata was his, his link play isn't quite there yet and he's currently running off instinctive finishes I feel like I feel like his kind of his one touch finishing and often more outrageous long range efforts are kind of fueling him because if you give him too much time on the ball there's several instances this season where if you send him through on goal when he has time he will invariably place it straight at the goalkeeper and yeah that's just normal stuff for a striker that young in his first it's not even really full season in the top five league it's really a half season so I do I do sort of wonder about that in terms of you've seen obviously the links with Man United and the expectation that would be on him for the money that would be required to bring him in. He is very raw and at Atalanta he's allowed to be raw because Gasparini thrives off having raw players. He's an absolute he's a magician at getting outrageous output out of all corners of his squad. Um so I I do I do wonder about that and um but yeah, and you mentioned Scalvini as well. Another really strong season off the back of his kind of breakthrough last year, and he started the season in central midfield, which was really interesting to see. And they they beat they beat Roma one 0 away at at Stadio Olimpico in I think about September, and he scored in it, sort of running running on from central midfield in a very very pragmatic Atalanta away performance. Um, he was brilliant, and he kind of got moved back into back into defence once Martin Derone had come back from injury, and Edison had started to acclimatise. And he's just he's just a mainstay of that defence already. And he's twenty, and uh, he's just he's brilliant. And you know his his passing and his progressive numbers are off the chart for a player that young. And and again, despite this isn't a dominant team. This isn't a team that spends a lot of time on the ball or can camp on the halfway line. Like this is a team that currently like struggles to play out from the back a lot of the time like they are relying on counter-attacks and yet his his passing numbers are just outrageous and um yeah who like you know who knows where he could go to and I, I was from the start of the season I was hoping we'd see a bit more of Caleb Acoli who's another academy graduate who'd come through but um you put him in the same back three as Scalvini and the, the difference between them is is quite stark and Gasparini quite quickly phased Akoli out because um, he's just not as good on the ball and he's got a huge error in him. So he's quite similar to Rafael Toloi in that extent. But um, yeah, I think Scalvini is the absolute, absolute gem and the, the, the longer that he stays at Atalanta and isn't noticed by a massive sort of super club, the, the better and the more his value is just going to rock it. Yeah, I think for me, like Hoyland will end up going for a much bigger fee because it's a striker's market. It's just, but Scalvini's the much more interesting case. I can't remember who I saw. It was on Twitter, but like there was a piece about how Scalvini's like modernising the 
Italian central defender kind of role. I think that maybe that's true to an extent, but Bastoni kind of does it as well. And to have both of those options is is very exciting. What will be interesting is Italy under twenty one Scalvini and Acoli will both probably be in the back line. Um, so we'll see how that works on obviously a less pressure environment, and it might be a blueprint for for Atalanta next season going forward. Tom, I know obviously Hoyland will go for a lot more money, but if you had to keep one this summer, who would you rather keep at Atalanta? Oh, it's hard. It's rather or because it's tricky because I think if you let Hoyland go, there will be a need for another striker because I. I think Duvan and Luis Maria will probably, if they're not let go this summer, they probably should be. Like as the, the, their time has kind of come to a close. Um, but equally, you look at the the options behind Scalvini in that defence, and Toloi's uh, thirty two, thirty three, and has lost that yard of pace that allows you to be a Gasparini centre back. Like part of the reason Gasparini's system was allowed to work is because the wing backs could bomb so far forward. And they could sit on the halfway line because the the two wide centre backs were quick enough on the turn that they could defend defend those what that wide space. Toloi has just lost that. Like he's naturally for a defender that age. You got Demiral who doesn't want to be there anymore. Uh, you know you're not left for the whole lot. You're left for Palomino's it well into his thirties and Jim City who's a more of a sort of steady Eddie kind of centre back. So I think to lose Scalvini would be. I think I'd rather lose Hoyland, I think, just because, like you say, Danny, the, the money for Hoyland, I would trust Atalanta to invest it wisely. Whereas I don't think the fee they would get for Scalvini could really justify um, how high his ceiling is. And, and to be honest, I'd rather leave, lose both of them over, over Coop Miners, who I think you take him out of that team and it, the, the, difference, the difference is staggering. And that's, that's whether he's playing in the in like a midfield pivot or playing as one of the like kind of advanced tens who runs beyond the striker if he's not on the field the it's quite alarming the lack of sort of forward thrust Atalanta have so yeah in that order Hoyland, Scalvini, Kumainers. Yeah I think that Atalanta have got quite lucky with Hoyland that the fact is is that they can they can the rest of the market is very inflated in terms of strikers, so they're able to put up to like 80, 85 million and say, and it doesn't look out of place and it doesn't seem out of the place of the player as well. So either you get a lot of money to replace your player, which I'm going to guess that Atlanta could probably do quite easily or with, with a decent amount of um, um, profit margin, or he stays for another season. Um, I, I like Highland. I mean, obviously, I'm a United fan. He would end up hopefully at my club if he was sold. Um, and I do agree with both of your points that the kind of like Danny's made it before where he said he doesn't think he's ready in a number of seasons. Atlanta would really benefit him, and I think it's for the reasons that you stated in terms of he has shown that he does have the attributes to be a top striker. It's just whether it's all there yet, um, and whether it's all like whether it'll be molded properly at a club where the demands of him are much higher. Um, but I, I do think in terms of the areas you think need to be addressed because obviously we're talking about if 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 a centre back if Scalvini leaves you need a centre back if Holland needs you need a striker are there any other areas you think need to be addressed in this next transfer window? I think to I I think there needs to be a widespread as well as outgoings I think as the phasing out of the old guard so Zapata Muriel Toloi probably need to be need to be phased out um, I. Th- I think there needs to be incomings across the across the pitch. So a goalkeeper is is absolutely essential. It looked like like Juan Musso is a very good goalkeeper. Um, he's a good shot stopper, but not great with his feet. Um, never was asked when he was at Udinese. He was never asked to play with his feet, and that's quite apparent now. Um, it'd be really interesting if they bring uh, Karnaseki back on loan because they've got him on their books and really young and. It'd be interesting to see whether they use him or whether they sell him because I think he's actually quite a sellable asset. There's not there's not much apart from apart from Hoyland and there's not too many sellable assets in that team, unless and and you don't want to start ripping those out at this stage because there's not a whole lot left behind them. The kind of the supporting cast is quite weak, probably as weak as it's been for a few years at Atalanta. Um, they need a central midfielder for me. Like they the the loss of Froehler is. 
it's really disappointing because he had such a poor season at Forest, and Forest fans absolutely hate him. They can't stand Remo Freuler, which is pretty sad because he's his, he kind of epitomised everything about that Atalanta team, and he was so important because um, him and Darun in tandem were the you know absolute pressing monsters, great off the ball. Um, but also really, really safe and dependable on the ball, and it did allow them to kind of dictate games. Atlanta don't have a kind of just like a someone who, like a metronome. Like like you can ask Kuntmanis to do it, but that takes a lot out of his game. That takes a lot of the dynamism and the that lot that incredible long pass he has. If you're asking him just to do the sort of almost boring safe stuff, I like to see him almost pushed a bit further forwards and. Darun, a bit like Coop Miners, if you take Darun out of the team, it's it's a worrying sight if you see he's not starting. And you shouldn't really be, that's, that's not really a great place to be with your squad if you're relying on mine Darun to be a, you know integral to everything still at his age. So I think multiple central midfielders are needed and passing central midfielders as well. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, Demaral, very unhappy. Looks like he's going to move. Palomino, Jim City, Toloi, all aging um, centre-backs. There's a lot needed at Atalanta and who knows, the sale of Hoyland could actually prove to be a blessing because it could have free up those funds to, to sort of allow that widespread change to happen. And um, But yeah, other than that, I think the only, I'd say the wing-backs are probably in the best state but even still, you know, to move on past Apacosta would be would be quite nice. So yeah, a lot, a lot needed for a team that's had largely a pretty good season. What is the sort of opinion on Lee Congerton in Atlanta? Because, I mean, I live in Glasgow and he is not looked at very kindly here <laughs> because his spell at Celtic wasn't good. But yeah, it's interesting because he did have two sort of mm, jobs and then got... Atlanta are always been renowned for like the recruitment in recent years. So how is he viewed in his first like year there? It was an interesting one, particularly because it's, it was more a case of who he was having to replace. Like... Sartori is like seen as like every bit as inte- integral to their success as as Gasparini. So to lose him to Bologna was was massive. And and like you say, Congerton's record was patchy at Celtic. And I think uh, when he went to when he went to Leicester, I think a lot a lot of it was seen as like Leicester's recruitment successes were often attributed to to him or like a widespread belief that Leicester get their recruitment right. And he was and he was there at Leicester, so therefore. That's like a, a, a tick on his CV. So, and and like I said, their their recruitment last year was not particularly inspiring on the surface. Like Edison, I'm still not sold on Edison um, for a fair amount of money as well. So look at 17 million euros or so to get him out of Salernitana. Last that's that's a fair amount of money for for Atalanta. Um, the Lookman signing has proven to be successful. How much? I don't think that was particularly. You know, he, he I'm pretty sure he was brought. Lookman to Leicester so I think that was more just a player that he liked so I, I don't know how much credit you can really give him for that it'll be interesting because this summer is the one where like I say a huge widespread change are needed so to see whether that can be done in a in a way that's true to Atalanta's history and what and this type of player they like to bring in sort of low value it doesn't really matter about the age they can some of Atlanta's greatest signings in the Gasparine era have been in the 28 to 30 range, but often coming off the back of a bad, a bad season or a bad spell, and then Gasparini manages to like take them up a level to the point where they're bordering on like Champions League level quality. Um, so that'll be interesting, and I, and whether yeah whether that's in line with Gasparini, that's the that's very important because. Who knows? He's like a he's like a Catherine Will at the best of times. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's aligned with whoever comes in. Yeah, that was going to be the kind of next question here in terms of Gasparini. Obviously, we there was some doubts over the last season whether this was kind of like the end of the cycle, the end of this Atalanta project as it stands. And we've mentioned other teams um, on this podcast, in this podcast specifically, and in other episodes where we said that it kind of is the matter of they're at a sort of maybe bridging point between two stages and they have to decide whether what they're going to keep and what they're going to change. Um, do you think that Gasparina still has a few years left in him or do you think that this 
kind of changeover if it's not done properly could be the end of his time there or it could be the fact that they might need to move on to kind of keep the success going in terms of the strategy. It's, it's, it's difficult because you wouldn't just be replacing a manager, you'd be replacing their greatest ever manager and someone who has the keys to the city of Bergamo. Like he's a, He has the freedom of the city. When you, when you come into Bergamo train station from the east, there's a mural painted on the side of a house that's his, like an enormous 20-foot-high painting of his face with Gomez, Ilicic and Duvan beneath it. Like He is absolutely beloved, and it's probably the only place he's ever been where he's really been loved. Like He's, he's fallen out of ultras at different, different places because he's, he's a difficult character. He is really problematic. Um, so... So for him to have found this place is, um, and then to you know is perfect for his career and what was needed, and he's just found a home there. So to take him out of that leaves Atalanta without not just a manager but without like an icon, and that's very difficult. And who do you get to replace him? Like the the long held belief is that um, is that uh, Ivan Juric would would replace him because he was his assistant manager and he played underneath him and. Largely, there are big similarities in their games, um, but it, it's just—it's more than just replacing a, a you know, a, a tactician or a coach. It's—it's it's everything that goes with it. Um, I do think there are signs. Well, there've been there've been plenty of signs over the last couple of years that he might not be the right man anymore in terms of his in-game substitutions. He's never been the best at in-game substitutions anyway because he's incredibly stubborn and will leave things way too late. Um, also, his his willingness to go back to his old, the players who made that great team, uh, has been as often stifled some of the younger players. There's a lot of people uh, associate Gasparini with being like a, a believer in young talent, whereas in actual fact, he much prefers an older player that he can rely on and has only really played youth when he's had to. So the only reason he integrated Hoyland as he did is because Murillo and Zapata were injured and playing badly. He, he introduced Jeremy Bogger for a, a period of a few months, and that looked to be really working, sort of playing as a 10 in behind um, Luckman and Hoyland. But as soon as Mario Pasolic was fit again, Pasolic came in and just offered someone completely uh, a different dynamic that didn't really benefit Luckman and, and Hoyland. So I do think he has some old tendencies that he, he falls back on that aren't necessarily that helpful to Atalanta anymore. Um, and he's 65 now, so I think he's probably running out of options. Like There was a lot of rumours that he'd be uh, a contender for the Napoli job, which I think would have been hilarious for a number of reasons. Like he, Na- Neapolitans hate him. He's said, he's has said all sorts about them before. Um, you know, would you, would you put Gasparini, a man who never, ever deviates away from the th- three at the back, would you put him in charge of that Napoli squad? I, I can't think of many worse fits, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to say when when would be the right place to right time to replace him. I think one thing is sure is that he's almost guaranteed his own right to walk away whenever he wants. I don't think he's unless it was an absolute catastrophe, like starting this, you know getting to Christmas and being in around the bottom three. I don't think they'd ever sack him because I think he's they're still desperate to keep hold of him. They still see him as absolutely everything else. Atalanta goes around him these incredible Champions League performances scoring 92 goals in 2019-20 only happens because of Gasparini and he's kind of earned that right and he probably knows that as well um, but yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting one I, you know you're looking at maybe a maximum two two years two three years maybe before he explodes again but yeah just I think it's a case of enjoying while he's there but um yeah, hopefully, hopefully next season we see and and the phasing out of that old guard will see him kind of uh, move on to a new a new cycle rather than kind of defaulting to the likes of Toloi, Pasolic, Duvan, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see. That's for sure. I mean, it's nice to see in terms of it is that Gasparini is an institution. He's not just a manager in sort of like we can talk about we call it like a day, and that's kind of the way that football is and thing but it is in some ways it's a double-edged sword of like when you let emotion play into it because obviously on one hand it's great that he's given all this um, leeway and the, the, the fans love him the fans want him to stay and he's happy to stay there because he 
he feels really indebted to Atalanta and that. But obviously then you, you have to think about it in terms of is there, a, is there a time limit on when Atalanta needs to get started again and will they let emotion mean that he's there for too long? I mean, obviously I'm happy with Gasparini there. I think he's a great manager and obviously I think that he's probably the best manager that Atalanta could get at the moment. I think there's, there's kind of not really an ideal candidate to make that switch at the moment. And maybe there is like a, a sort of outside of the box, but the way that Atalanta needs to do a turnover of the squad, I don't think there's like a case where it would work maybe 70% chance of working. Like it's probably a lot lower. Um, if anything you want to add to that, Danny? Yeah, I think I think Juric it would be like the natural progression, but he's just started a cycle at Torino and like he's he made his Verona team very good. He's made this Torino team considerably better, and Torino are actually backing him a bit financially as well. So I don't know if he'd instantly jump to another job because there does seem to be sort of progression and stuff going on at Torino. I mean, it's like, like Gasparini leaving Atalanta is like Wenger leaving Arsenal, but you've got a much limited pool to pick for your next manager from. Obviously, they don't have as much pressure, but like, whoever comes into that job, it, you are under such a microscope from like a city that has one club. So like, everyone in that city is the microscope's on the football club. It's 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 it might not from the outside world the. The sort of pressure might not be then there, but in Bergamo, that's incredible pressure to follow up Gasparini. Yeah, I, I think as well, it's um, it's an interesting... Atlanta Fonso is in a weird point where they're obviously like a European club, but they're not like... Um, a lot of coaches wouldn't see them necessarily as like a next stepping stone unless they've come from a much lower... from a much lower club. So the, the names that were linked a couple of years ago on Gasparini's side to... Throw his toys out the pram were um, were like Deserbi off the back of his Sassuolo, um, Italiano, um, and those managers have already in the space of a couple of years kind of gone to a level whereby they probably wouldn't well they wouldn't be looking at Atlanta as an option. So you've almost got to pick someone, like you say, Danny, completely off the like out of the wilderness almost, or a, a like a young manager who's taking their first steps and just hoping that they kind of develop again. It's they're caught in this weird kind of stasis of. European level club, but don't have the funds or the status to pick up a manager, a European level manager. It's, it's a really unusual kind of position they find themselves in. Yeah, like you could, the, Atlanta have, that would have to take a huge risk. I mean, there's like a few Italian managers out there they could go for. Farioli is obviously very interesting to people tactically, but he's only he's been a goalkeeping coach and then uh, managed in Turkey. I think the thing with Gasparini is, just to go back on it, like, Bergamo was one of the toughest hit cities by COVID and Gasparini became sort of like, and his football club became such a big thing during that. Like, that was something that that city clinged on to. So, like, you're following up someone that just, it goes way beyond football for them. It's, like, it's such a heightened level of emotion like you, if you don't do it exactly right, you're they're not gonna warm to you straight away, and it it'll be tough. So yeah, it's uh, it's not like the highest pressure job in football, but that next appointment is one of the most interesting and sort of under the microscope decisions in Italy. I think it's it was incredible. So obviously we've discussed everything. We've discussed the current team. We've discussed um, how it needs a turnover. We've discussed the manager. We've discussed like the young players that could or could not be there next season. And I just kind of want to put it to you with all that in mind. I, I'm not. I'm not going to try to predict their summer window. But what are your expectations for Atalanta next season? And what are your re- what are your hopeful expectations? And what are your realistic expectations? Is probably the way to phrase that. I think. Um... It's almost a lot of it depends on the what happens with the teams around them going into next season. Like who who even knows what what Juventus's summer recruitment is going to look like, and Napoli could get absolutely plundered, but could equally go into a into next season with a similar similar side. Roma seems to be recruiting well and smartly, but again with with Jose there, he's entering his third season, so that could all implode. I think, I think, I think 
what you're hopeful with of Atalanta is uh, is positive, exciting football without it necessarily being results driven. I think another another top eight finish. I think no one would no one would uh, would begrudge that at all. Um, whether they have the means to make a Champions League push again, I'm not sure because as good as some of the players they are, they have now are um, they're not. They're not the genius level players that push them into the Champions League, like Papu Gomez, Nilicic, and Duvan at that time. Like we're talking about, particularly Papu Gomez and Nilicic, two of probably the two best players in Italy around between 2017 to I'll probably say 2019, 20. I think you're looking at probably the two best players in Italy in that time. Maybe, maybe Ronaldo in that time, but. Um, that it was that genius level player that pushed them into the Champions League. I don't think they quite have that now. Like as good a good a season as Lookman had, scoring thirteen goals, it's not um, it's not that kind of propellant effect of having those creative, creative players. Um, so yeah, I think I think they're probably realistic and what I hope for are probably pretty aligned. I think just a top eight, a good run in Europe because some of the the matches and the nights that you think of when you think of that Gasparini team are the European ones it's the it's the 4-1 four, four against Valencia at San Siro it's it's the beating by Leverkusen in the Europa League like it, the the two match against Man United the the 2-0 win at uh, Anfield against Liverpool like that that is what you think of when you think of this Gasparini team it was those European nights that kind of really pushed them you know going 1-0 up against PSG in the in the quarterfinal of the Champions League being seconds away from getting to a semi-final that is that is almost like what this team was almost born out of um so yeah it'd be good just to see a deep a deep europa league run and i could i could see that being a possibility perhaps taking focus away from the league a bit um but yeah a pro- progression on this year and gasparini not to implode by the start of next season i think that's probably i think that's a fair that's a fair expectation, but yeah. I think with like the league as well, there's a few teams that if they stick with their like if Bologna stick with Mota, he's doing interesting things there with attacking football and good recruitment because they look at Scottish players, um, and <laughs> and Fiorentina under uh, Italiano, and it looks like he will be there again. Are like they are cooking something influence like he's a very good manager they have very good players they could easily shoot up the league if things click and like with Monzo I don't know really know what will happen now Berlusconi has passed away but like their financial backing exceeds Atalanta's and and they have some good players so like I think there's like a cluster of clubs in Serie A that you could easily see Atalanta getting caught in like a, a top eight finish sort of scrap with them if if it's not as good as it was this season. So it is interesting. I think as much as it depends on what Atalanta do and Atalanta are in the driving seat, they've got Europa League football. They can recruit well. We'll see what happens there. But like you could easily get caught in the scrap and other teams are up and coming. Uh, Torino as well have very good players and, and a very good manager. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him finish maybe Europa League again. I think that might be the, the sort of thing. Just kind of like maintain, re- replenish and maintain is probably the, the, the best case scenario. Obviously, like I'd like to see the main for a Champions League place, but I think that the teams that are above them will probably do better things with the budget they have available to them because that's just the case that they have more money. Um, but I do think that, that, that if they manage to get a Europa League place and also start to replace or replace fully the positions that they need to that you mentioned, Tom, uh, I think that'll be a, a very good season from them. So I think that is everything. I think we did a really good roundup there. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we we say <laughs> goodbye to everyone, Danny? Uh, just because I know people get confused on social media, Atalanta, it's, this is about Atalanta, not Inter Milan. I know we were talking about Hoyland a lot and the blue and black stripes confuse certain people, so... It's an Atalanta episode. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't have a clue <laughs> what you were talking about there, Danny. Uh, I would have absolutely is that, no clue. Is that, is that aimed at someone specific? Well, K- Casey might have got a block of the back of this. 
Yeah, maybe. It was a, that was an interesting interesting situation where someone definitely hadn't watched the player that they were definitely trying to say they watched. Um, but we won't we won't we won't drag them out on this podcast. <laughs> we are a classy we are a class above. We are a classy professional outfit that apparently sounds like the announcer from Shrek. Uh, but still, uh, I'd just like to end this by thanking you, Tom. Thank you for coming on. Obviously, if you're listening and you haven't read it or you want to read more about Atalanta, The Working Hands of the Goddess is available to buy on Amazon and other sort of providers. And I just wanted to quickly shout out, you've got another book coming out. If you just wanted to do a quick summary of that, it's Rinascimento. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm very bad at Italian pronunciations, but that's coming out next year. Yep, so uh, yeah, Renascimento, which is the uh, translator's renaissance, uh, is uh, the story of uh, Spalletti and Napoli's uh, title win. So that was, yeah, that's coming out June June 2024. And uh, yeah, unlike the Atalanta one, there is tangible, uh, it's a tangible trophy to, to hinge the book off as opposed to, a, you know, for sort of football philosophy. But uh, yeah, so yeah, you can, uh, you, I'll, I'll be following my Twitter to... Uh, find out more details about that yeah and if you want to follow tom's twitter just that is at tom d underscore underhill which is very confusing when you say it when you say it out loud but yeah that is tom's twitter make sure to follow that um obviously as always i'd like to say a big thank you to my co-host danny uh he gets me through the day despite the fact that he's wearing a patriot shirt <laughs> so well, uh, which is something that you won't be able to see on the podcast, but I had to point it out because he is a dirty Patriots fan. Uh, but that's enough to say there. Uh, and, again, and Celtics too, Casey. by the way. And oh. the Celtics, just to double down on it. Oh, you're a Boston Celtics yeah, yeah, fan yeah, as yeah. well? Oh, well, you are actually the worst. Like, we, we're going to have words at the end of this one. Well, the recording's off. <laughs> just going to hear it just a, just a punch in Zap. <laughs> so I make my way up to Glasgow <laughs> just to beat him up. Right, but again... I've been Casey. This has been the Seriously Good Podcast. Again, thank you, Tom, for coming on. And we'll see you next time with hopefully another guest and more great Syriac content. Ciao.